Hello, everyone, and welcome to Distributed Morphs. Today's guest is Dr. Megan Figueroa. Dr. Figueroa is a researcher with the Tweedy Lab at the University of Arizona, as well as one of the co-hosts of the podcast, The Vocal Fries. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, morphology and language acquisition. I will warn you, there is some adult language in this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You were my TA once. Was I? Did you know that? Did I tell you this before? I think maybe, but uh, what class was I your TA for? Syntax with Carney. Wow. And I think it was 2006. Yes. <laughs> we were both that, so young back then. That seems possible. Well, I'm not lying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but my memory, you know, I'm getting up there. I have a lot of gray hair. <laughs> yeah, I was going to uh, say, we're, we were younger back then, but I'm still young now. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not so much. But yeah, yep, you were my TA. Yeah, I love syntax because of you and Carney. I actually really liked that class. Everyone said it was scary, but I didn't find it scary at all. Well, Carney and I both uh, have a little bit of what is known as uh, resting bitch face. <laughs> okay, that's not a lie. <laughs> um, and so a lot of people think that we are uh, scarier than we really are. Yeah. Because uh, both yeah. of us kind of uh, have this thing where when we're thinking or just sort of looking off into space... Uh, people think that we're being really mean, but we're yes. really not. Yeah. Well, uh, and on top of that, syntax is pretty hard. Yeah. So yeah. the two of those things, I think, scared a lot of people. Um, yeah. I just heard like, oh, uh, Ling 300. Don't get it with Carney. It's so hard. Like, all right, whatever. And yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, he literally wrote the book. Exactly. I mean, that, you know. And and I got to you weren't the TA for when I took Heidi's uh, English words class, but you know I'm like she wrote the book too. So like, wouldn't you want to take a class from the people who wrote the book? I thought it was great. I was really lucky. But yep. So I mean, we're talking today about stuff that kind of relates to syntax, and obviously you were yes interested in uh, syntax. You stuck with linguistics. Right. And you got into some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like morphosyntax, right? So, yeah. Well, so do I, because yes. it's the best. <laughs> it is the best. It is the best. So, syntax, I mean, it's right there in the name. So, yeah. Yep. And my dog is trying to uh, join, in, join in in our conversation a little bit. Well, I, I've heard that my my voice is very melodic for, for dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I for some reason I hit the right pitch or something. <laughs> so uh, besides just being into morphosyntax, you're also into uh, uh, child development, child language development in, in yes. particular. Yes. Um. So can you tell us how that all kind of fits together? Well, yeah. Um, you mean the, the the two fields of morphosyntax and the yeah, morphosyntax, child language development. Like those are like where do all of those pieces like come together? Well, one of the most miraculous, miraculous, <laughs> one of the most miraculous <laughs> and like 
proven things you know, that we have in this world is that kids learn language and they seem to do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Little miracles. Children are little miracles that learn language without much help at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's something we don't actually think about. Uh, Well, actually, I think, you know, some parents really do think about it. And, you know, there's like baby Einstein tapes and all this other, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, bullshit out there yeah exactly yeah um but yeah no i mean uh babies are little language machines they are and um my interest in child language development came about because i was trying to learn spanish as a adult and it was really really fucking hard (laughs) and sorry are we allowed to cuss in this you know, I've been cussing a little bit, so sure. I, I, but you said like, <laughs> there bullshit. No rules. There, there, there are you no know. rules. <laughs> okay. Um, so it was really hard to learn, especially for me, these morphosyntactic bits of language as a second language learner of Spanish. And so I was interested in, in how kids seem to do this without no problem at all. So without how children do it with no problem at all right yes yes um so yeah that's how those two like feels kind of collided for me um how they relate to the broader picture of language in general is that um it can kind of tell us about a lot of different things in language so how children learn the sounds of language how they learn the morphology and the morphosyntax of language can just kind of tell us um deeper truths i think about about those those bits those subfields of linguistics cool yes so i mean one of the aspects that you really have focused a lot on in your research is this with respect to child language and beyond that is dealing with questions of like what is regular and what is mm-hmm. irregular can you help us kind of understand what that is and then also how that kind of bears on this question of child language? Yes. yes. So I guess it all goes back to, and maybe I should have said this in, in the first question, is like the poverty of the stimulus problem. I don't know. Okay. If, yeah. So um, Chomsky saying, you know, this is, goes back to Chomsky. Um, children learn language without any problem. And this is talking about neurotypical children, of course. You know, right. things are different, but yeah. With um, And also with like regular, uh, you know, some sort of regular environmental exposure. Yes, yes. No like deprivation situation here. Um, right. So, you know, um, uh, yes. So the poverty of the stimulus, children learn language with no instruction but there is not enough input for them to have done so. Like we're, they're not hearing every sentence ever and they're not hearing every way a certain verb can be used or how the noun can be like in this part of the sentence, it can be an object. And then sometimes it's the subject, you know, like they don't hear that for every single noun that they'll learn. And yet they still learn how to use nouns and as subjects and as objects and all this. So how the heck do they do that? if they're not getting all of that in the input. And so this is where regularity for me comes in. Well, for for anyone, I'm not the only one. (laughs) Uh, But they have to, they have to be doing something with input that they do get. They have to be 
creating some sort of rule, some exemplars, some some sort of analogy um, to be able to then, um, you know, make their own sentences that that we've never heard before. So, um, and regularity and irregularity come into this because they have to learn both regular and irregular rules. So I'm very interested in the past tense um, of English because it is this perfect example of regular and irregular. So we have regular verbs like jumped and walked, but we also have irregular verbs like, um, I was going to say catched. <laughs> I, 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 worked so, I worked so much with this that I actually think catch sounds really good. Um, yeah. Irregular verbs like caught. Um, okay, so how then do children learn the difference between a regular verb and an irregular verb? Um, what we see is that, and this goes back to poverty of stimulus, it's really awesome because kids will start over-regularizing. And that what I mean by that is that they'll add this kind of ED bit that's supposed to go to regular verbs to irregular verbs to make things like catched and things like uh, breaked for mm-hmm. broke. Um, and why are they doing that? How are they doing that if they're not getting that in the input? It's because they have created some sort of rule in their head um, that they're now overextending to parts that to verbs that they've never that, you know, technically, you know, if you're speaking standardized English or whatever, um, they shouldn't go with in that dialect. And so like, I want to say right now that it's very important that some dialects of English do have things like catched and breaked part of their dialect. So the kids and that's completely fantastic. Um the kids that I have looked at for my dissertation work and for the work following that are from um, families who don't have this in their dialect. So when I look at it, it is an over-regularization. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit to the poverty of the stimulus and also mm-hmm. just kind of help our the listeners who may not be as familiar with this understand mm-hmm. this. One of my absolute favorite examples of this, and since we've already broken our our cursing <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, signal is what's known as fucking insertion. Yes. Um, yes. Because like so many people, uh, I, I run into this with students and stuff like that, that are kind of convinced that there must be some sort of an implicit or explicit instruction mm-hmm. that kind of helps people along. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, when we encounter like state names, mm-hmm. we know the rules of where to put fucking in the middle of them. Yeah, like we know that we can say, yeah, Go Era ahead. fucking Zona. <laughs> Era fucking Zona. Ella fucking Noi. But you can't say can fucking Zus. Right. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, and it's just something we know. And I can guarantee you that, you know, unless you had a really weird mom mm-hmm. um, or a really <laughs> weird sixth grade teacher who was probably fired. Right. You weren't taught that. Right. Um, but it's part of our, like, it's part of our knowledge of language. Right. So... Yeah, and it's really cool because um, there are big disagreements on how we have that knowledge of language, um, but we still have it. So in, in as linguists, we could say, okay, we have that knowledge because, you know, kids hear all of these things and they keep every example of everything they've heard and they store it in their mind and then they make analogies to make language later. That's one way yeah. people think. Or the other is that we have some sort of language faculty where we don't have to store all of that um, 
And we've just extrapolated from all of the exemplars and made little rules. And then there's something in between, um, which is actually probably where I would go. Um, because of this child language work that I've done, I'm really impressed by all of these psychological biases that we have that help us sort through regular and irregular things. And I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. So like, I, I think, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, what can we learn in like when we're trying to do theoretic work from the work that you've done on acquisition? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I really like to bring up Quine and the Gavagai problem. Um, awesome. So I almost brought that up. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So this scholar Quine um, came up with the Gavagai problem. And it's basically like this. So you are somewhere where you don't speak the language and someone else, you're with someone who speaks this, this language that's foreign to you and a bunny rabbit <laughs> hops by and this person says, uh, Gavagai and points to the rabbit. Um, so now you're left with this problem, which is, okay, this Gavagai must mean something about what this person just pointed to, but does it mean the rabbit? Does it mean, uh, the hopping? Does it mean food source? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. does it mean just the ears? Uh, so that is the problem that kids are faced with when they're learning language and it's a big problem. And yet we have all of these psychological biases that help us kind of break down the problem. So one of the first ones uh, that would kick in would be the whole object bias. So that would mean that when someone points to a rabbit hopping by um, and says Gavagai, we're not going to assume it's talking this person is talking about the rabbit's tail. We're going to have a whole object bias that says this person is talking about the rabbit. Right. So that's, you know, that's one way that we can kind of start breaking down this, this learning problem, this, this word learning problem. Yeah. And that's something else that we see with uh, kids that I think relates to the Gavagai problem is something mm-hmm. like um, their over and under generalization when it comes yes. to objects. Yes. Yes. So. so that's another stage that kids will go through once they're learning more um, language. Okay. So now they've, I'll use my example of my dog. Uh, dog. I have a dog named Rilo, and imagine there were kids living with Rilo. Um, they could do this kind of under or overextension of the word dog. So they could learn that Rilo is a dog, and they could overextend and think, okay, anything with four legs and a tail is a dog. And some kids will go through that stage. They could underextend and think that the only dog in the entire world is Rilo. So then he is, he is dog and nothing else is dog. So there's where that, that um, kind of regularized, regularize, regularize, regularize? Yeah, regularize. Oh my God, COVID-19 is really... See, this is, <laughs> this is the thing too, when you spend a lot of time with like bits of language, you kind of think that everything sounds bad and good. You're like, okay, I don't know. I think catched again, going back to that is a perfectly great word. And I kind of, you know, so there is a specific <laughs> term for when that, what that's called. And I totally am blanking on it right now. You know, I'm like thinking like recency, semantic bleaching. No, none of that's right. But it's like, no, it starts with an S uh, and I just can't remember what it's called. I know it starts with an S 
It's, so I'm having a tip of the tip of the tongue effect, but yes. um, uh, yeah, no, it, it it is a real linguistic effect where when you're exposed to like bad forms enough, 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 yeah, um, you start you start to be like, yes, yes, that's totally fine, yes, and I get that all the time too. So. Yeah. Well, and quote unquote bad, of course, you know, like right, 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 right. relative, um, or depending on you know quote unquote bad for our dialect because it doesn't actually match with what we grew up speaking. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know where I was going with regular lies, <laughs> but, but yes. Yeah, so this over and under extension is another stage that children go through. Um, and they might do the same thing too, where Rilo um, is the word for anything that is, um, has four legs and a tail. So then a horse that they might meet might be Rilo. So um, kids are just, constantly trying to solve this language learning problem and they're using these kind of psychological biases to help them with it uh, another one would be a mutual exclusivity bias where okay they have um uh they know rilo is dog and then um i uh so rilo's sitting there and then i put next to them a novel object and i say i don't know uh wug and they, using the mutual exclusivity bias, will think that WUG is referring to the new object, and I'm not giving them like a synonym for Rilo. So that's another right. another bias um, that a psychological bias that helps with with language learning. So they have all of these tools at their um, disposal, and they're all coming into play while children are trying to learn language. Um, and it gets tricky, right? Because think about and I love verbs, verbs are really hard because when they're trying to learn verbs, often the verb we use, the action is not happening right in front of us as it's happening. So there's like no concrete thing to point to. And it's really, you know, even gets messy thinking about what a concrete thing is when it comes to verbs. Like, do we see the finished action? And this, like, what is, you know, is that what they're thinking is what the verb means? So um, it's very, very difficult to learn but kids do it or in your work on tense where especially yes. you're working on past tense like yes <laughs> yes by definition you're not you know the the action is not present and you know right so how you know what is the kid pointing to or looking at right exactly to, to learn what that verb meant yeah i mean these yeah. are these are questions that we're still asking <laughs> that we're actively trying to figure out it's really hard now I've already forgotten again what the point was. Oh, brother. All right. What was that point? Oh, okay. So, yes. So no matter where we stand, whether or not we believe that kids have some sort of like language bit in their brain that helps them with language, or if we believe that that is bonkers, um, we don't really have a way to prove that. Um, like MRIs can't prove that there's no way to get into the brain and actually find the answer to this. So we have all these indirect ways of testing these things. Um, and you know, again, indirect. So that's not, you know, solid proof, but you know, we can get to kind of point in language studies and in, in child language studies where we're like, we feel really confident that this is what they're doing based on all this indirect evidence. Um, but again, we don't really know what, what children are doing for a fact. Um, and that's kind of scary, but it's also like, I mean, that's science. We're just trying to get closer and closer to the truth. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have all these indirect ways of of trying to get at a bigger picture um, language learning tools that kids are using. Um, and so what I did my dissertation on, and I think it's really freaking clever, um, if I do say so myself, is I took this like obsession I have with um, the past tense in English and regular and irregular um, and and ask the question, do kids actually over-regularize in their head? Like, receptively, way before they start saying things like catched and braked and runned. So why would I even care about that? It's... Uh, <laughs> uh, well, we'll talk about that after. So, um, okay, so kids start over-regularizing really precocious ones maybe before three years old, but three years old seems to be kind of a good age of when they start over-regularizing these past tense verbs. And when we start hearing kids say catch, we're like, ah, we've used this as evidence that kids have learned the past tense rule. They wouldn't just say catched because they're not hearing it in their environment, the whole poverty of the stimulus again. Um, So they must have learned something that is akin to, add ed to English verbs to create the past tense. So now we have this proof that this kid knows that rule. So I was like, all right, I've been learning about child language development. And what I've learned is that receptively, they are so much smarter than they are productively. Um, So what they understand is so much you know, far advanced is so much more advanced than what they're actually saying. So do they actually overregularize in their head way before they start producing these things? Um, so I took 16 month olds and this is, so that's a year and four months. And like I said before, like three month, three years is when we usually start seeing these in production. So like a year and a half earlier for some kids, I took these 16 month olds and I wanted to know if they overregularized in their head. So um, I did three, the way to do this is I had over five years, and this is my dissertation. um, I tested kids and have you, have your students done anything with, they wouldn't know testing procedures, right? Uh, Some of them will, will have taken like psycholinguistics or have taken um, uh, language acquisition, but not from this class. Okay. Yeah. So um, the way that you test kids, um, one way to do it is called the head turn preference procedure. And kids will, um, with their parents, go into a booth and they will be exposed to um, stimuli um, two different kinds. So one that is matches their language and then one that does not match. And we want to know, do they listen longer or do they attend to the language that um is familiar to them or um which which one is familiar to them do and when they do attend to these things when they do um listen longer to the stimuli that fits with their language then we know that they understand what's happening so this is like 30 years where people have found that kids attend to the language that is familiar to them so we we have like three decades of 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 evidence that this works so Um, what I did is I kind of flipped it and I said, okay, I'm going to give them sentences like Snoopy breaked the door and Snoopy catch the ball. And 
technically that doesn't that isn't familiar shouldn't be familiar to them because that's not in their environment um and it doesn't actually match the english that they're learning but i'm going to actually claim and assume or hypothesize that they're going to think that that's familiar because they have already learned that you add ed to english verbs and that this is actually familiar given their representation of english it may not be their parents' representation of English, and it may not be what they've heard in their environment, but this is what they've extrapolated from their environment. So now this is their this is their representation of English. And it turned out that that was the case, that they did um, overwhelmingly, like it was a huge effect, a statistical effect, that these 16-month-olds preferred this these over-regularized verbs. Um, and so... Uh, we did three conditions. We compared the overregularized verbs to um, nonce verbs. So I created these nonsense verbs and added ed to it, and they preferred the the overregularized English verbs. Okay, well, what if it's the case that they just preferred the overregularized English verbs because they they hear something familiar? Just it's the verb familiarity. It's not that they like ed with the verbs. So the second condition was using English nouns and adding ed to it. So, okay, nouns are actually probably more familiar to kids at this age than verbs. So if anything, if there was a familiarity effect, it might be a preference for the nouns. We still saw overwhelming effect of kids preferring the English verbs with the ed. Um, So that felt pretty convincing. And then we, um, the final condition that we did is we compared these to regular, um, sorry, irregular. (laughs) We compared it to their irregular counterparts. So we had one stimulus bit that was like Snoopy catch the ball. And then the other thing that it was compared to would be Snoopy caught the ball. And it was a null effect. So um, our hypothesis there is that kids are kind of just have, they haven't really decided between the two um, that both of those are fine for them, given their representation of English at 16 months. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So that's what I was doing. Um, and, you know, it, I, I just think it's really, if any, if you get anything from, from me about kids and language learning is how freaking amazingly advanced they are before they can tell us right (laughs) or sign to us um so they're doing so much work before so much is going into um you know language learning before they start their start saying their first words or their first sentences um yeah i mean the lab you currently work in uh they have done studies as if i'm not mistaken as young as uh three days old um, so um other labs have we do seven month olds as the as the uh, youngest. Okay, okay. yes but yeah you can absolutely like neonates like like language um learning labs have done it on yeah like three days old they have different um techniques they have like a sucking procedure um because that's as much as you can do when you're a neonate um at right. seven month old um yeah that's we use the head turn um, preference because they are still able to like at that point, they're able to turn their head, but it's really amazing. I mean, you know, the, the methods that we use are kind of just, you know, we think about the developmental stage that children are in, like physically all of this. Um, But 
there are decades of researchers that have come before me that have done really great work to show us that <laughs> even, you know, like in the, so in the third trimester, kids are, you know, the, 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 the baby is, is able to kind of hear the mom's voice through like reverberations, <laughs> you know? So they're even learning language, like at the very end of the, the, the third trimester. Yeah, so, I've, I've 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 heard that uh, they're starting to acquire the prosodic uh, exactly. features of their of their language early or yeah. at the later ends of pregnancy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're not learning. Yeah, prosodic is basically all they can do because it kind of sounds like if you're have you ever been underwater, you know, swimming or whatever, and like you hear someone over you, like it's really garbled. <laughs> so that's kind of what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> like literally, you're like in water. Or- and stuff and stuff. So yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But a lot is going on. Um, These little brains are putting in so much work and, um, and it's just really cool because again, it it all goes back to this poverty of the stimulus question. We can start asking questions about the poverty of the stimulus, about whether or not input is enough by looking at how kids are learning things like, like what I did with, with um, my study showing that, okay, input, I, you know, input is definitely not, um, the input that they're getting is enough, um, but it's kind of remarkable that it is because they're overextending the things that they're, they're hearing in the input. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to talk about some more recent stuff you've been doing as well, mm-hmm. uh, where you've been working with, uh, uh, folks in contact situations with uh, 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 language development in a contact situation. So can you tell us a little bit more about that work and how that's um, sort of maybe reshaping some of your thoughts on language acquisition or maybe not yeah. reshaping is the right word or Actually, I'll let you take it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so um, the, the work that I just described and all of that actually was, um, the reshaping because my beginnings and all of this was with bilingualism. And I started out um, in a speech and hearing lab as an undergrad um, looking at bilingual children, like elementary age children and what their morphosyntax looked like. And specifically since I was in a speech and hearing lab, I was looking at um, what disorder, language disorder might look like. And the reason why I was so fascinated with morphosyntax is because it happens to be a bit of language um, that is impaired if a if someone has language disorder. Um, it's a particularly hard bit for children with language disorder to learn, specifically the past tense. So the English past tense is actually a hallmark clinical marker of language disorder in children. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so that's still, again, one of those questions where, you know, we don't quite know why, and we're still trying to figure it out. But what we do know is that kids have a hard time with the, um, regular past tense, the, not the irregular, but the regular. So they're having trouble creating these rules. They're having trouble with, um, the rulemaking bit, not with the irregular verbs. These irregular verbs that you can ostensibly just memorize, that's fine for them. 
Um, but it's this rulemaking um, bit that's hard for them. So that's where I started. And so I started in a lab, a speech and hearing lab that was looking at Spanish English bilingual children and how, you know, what does that look like? Does, what does their morphosyntax look like when, um, a, they don't have language disorder, but they're just in a contact situation. And so their English is going to look different because it's, it's influenced by Spanish because they learn Spanish first. Um, and then English is the, you know, the quote unquote mainstream majority language. Um, their morphosyntax is going to look differently than a kid who grew up, um, who may be in the same class as them, but grew up with only one language and that language was English. Um, so I just became fascinated with what they call it grammatical profiles. So what your, your morphosyntax looks like. Um, and it's kind of like an ideolect, right? So like we all have our own way of speaking. We all have our own like grammatical profiles. And um, this is work. This is, um, something I really tried to bring into my work in child language development with like monolingual speakers, monolingual learning um, children, is that our grammatical profiles are unique to us. And we really need to get away from a stigma that says that we shouldn't be speaking a certain way or something shouldn't look like that. So if a kid does grow up and says catched for the rest of their life, that's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, right? Uh, there, you know, there's southern the southern U.S. There are um, parts of the southern U.S. where people do say things like "catch" as part of their dialect, and so I really don't want to add to any stigma that says that like "catched" is overregulized all the time, right? It's only overregulized for some kids who don't have it in their dialect. For other kids, that's that's perfect. That's not overregulized. That's just regular you know like that's that's how it's just a regular form in that exactly exactly um so and that's not to say that you know regular and irregular isn't still very interesting and how our brains work with it it's just to say that like what is regular and what is irregular in a certain dialect is just very specific to that so um but yeah so this bilingualism work really taught me to pay attention to the fact that um, folks' language will look different, and we have to be really careful when we interpret that for language disorder. Um, and and that's why I'm very interested in this past tense because um, the grammatical profiles, again, what our you know what our language grammar looks like for each person, um, it looks one way for Spanish speaking kids who are learning English. Um, it looks kind of similar to what language disorder looks like. So we have to be very careful and we have to be very nuanced. And that's another lesson that I've learned from that. Um, Nuance is very important. And sometimes we don't have time for nuance and we got to make time for it. That's what I've learned. You got to make time for nuance. Awesome. Yeah. Did I answer that question completely? Yeah, I think so. Okay. All right. Sorry, um, I, I was just thinking that I haven't talked about my own work in so freaking long. Um, <laughs> so I hope I'm making sense. It's also COVID brain. Um. <laughs> I mean, we all have a little bit of, you know, we haven't left the house and going on, what, three weeks now? Right. Um, it's uh, how many hours of Netflix are we into? 
I know. And I, I just I just started Justified again. I'm like going back to shows that I've like already watched, you know, so Yeah. <laughs> I've I've been I've been tempted to 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 rewatch Justified. It's such a great show. It's a great show and I'm also like, oh, the accents. Is this, you know, like I'm I know nothing. Well, I I know some bit some things about like Appalachian English and Southern English, but I'm like why am I pretending like I can actually say if this is good or not? But like Walton Goggins is actually from there. So Boyd Crowder, you know, like, all right, this is an authentic accent. All right. <laughs> right. But a whole mess of the rest of the actors are all from Australia. Well, and then Timothy Oliphant's from like New York or something. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but, yeah. <laughs> but who's the the really the the dumb one who thought he had four kidneys? Oh, um, Dewey this is Crow? so irrelevant. Dewey Crow. Yeah, Dewey. He's he's Australian, I think. You know, it's the not actor. I mean, it's always relevant to talk about him because he was so good as Charles Manson. Char- <laughs> 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 Sorry. Anyway, yes, he played Charlie Manson very well. I didn't know right, he was Australian, well, so thank you. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm I'm like 95 percent sure on that. All right. Do you have anyway. any like final thoughts you want to leave us leave us with? Um, or I mean, you don't have to. I just wanted to give you the opportunity um yeah i guess i just really want to reiterate the whole like um regular and irregular so i I just like there's so much baggage that can come with like thinking that something is regular or irregular it's like irregular just seems like okay so it's not regular there's something wrong with it it's just that it doesn't it doesn't fit a rule so um and that's just completely dependent on a language and um, why we would look at, you know, why ch- or how children learn regular and irregular rules is just to tell us a little bit more about what our brain is doing um, with regular and irregular bits of information. Are we memorizing irregular bits? Are we, you know, learning rules? All of these things, like it gets, it gets pretty deep. <laughs> I yeah. can't really go into all of it, but, but there's no like value judgment. I guess that's, that's the, that's the, the message there. There's, it's, this is not a value judgment. It's just, um, ways to kind of get at how um, our brain learns information. Um, and, and yeah, kids are amazing. I mean, maybe you don't think kids like individual kids are amazing, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, what they're doing, what their brains are doing is nothing short of like a scientific miracle. <laughs> so no, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, and it, and we really do have like a, what it, it probably is the one thing that makes us unique as humans. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I completely agree. Um, even if, if you don't believe that there's like a bit in our brain that's de- completely devoted to language, you gotta admit that this is absolutely unique to humans, <laughs> even if the structure doesn't look like what you think it does. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that kind of gets lost with linguists. And I hope that all of the young budding linguists <laughs> that listen uh, can just take some salt, you know, solace in the fact that language is amazing, no matter how you believe we have it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today, Megan. Of course. It was an absolute pleasure. And I, well, I just checked. I, do not have access to your performance in uh, Syntax in 2006. I'll just have to assume it was amazing. Uh, I got an A. <laughs> totally got an A. Actually, I think I got an A+. Uh-huh. Uh, 
We didn't have uh, plus oh, minus oh, that at was Arizona. ASU. That was ASU. Sorry, never mind that. Oh, I, <laughs> now I could be lying, but yeah. <laughs> no, it was an A. All right. Thank you. Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again to Megan for joining us today. As I've noted uh, in previous episodes, uh, our schedule is irregular as we deal with the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, I do have a few other guests I'm working on a uh, scheduling with, um, and I uh, again uh, ask for your patience as we uh, work on getting them uh, arranged. Thank you again so much for listening.